Money starts right now, live from the NASDAQ market site overlooking New York City's Times Square. I'm Melissa Lee. Your traders on the desk are Tim Seymour, Brian Kelly, Dan Nathan, and Guy Adami. Tonight on Fast Tesla, hitting the skids as competition in the space ramps up. And top Tesla analyst Adam Jonas says it is about to get worse. He'll be here. Plus, Tulip Mania 2.0. One Wall Street firm is calling the cannabis craze a bubble of epic proportions that is about to explode. We'll have all the details. And later, Goldman Sachs CEO David Solomon pouring cold water on growth fears, telling CNBC there is no recession in sight. We will bring you those comments. But we start with the market. Stocks rallying for the second straight day. The Dow and S&P closing at the highest level since early December. In one sector in particular is catching fire. Check out energy leading the market today and up more than 20% from those Christmas Eve lows. The group on track for the best quarter since 2011. So is there more room to run? Guy. Sorry, dancing. Get my groove on here. The short answer is yes. Now, you weren't here on Monday, Melissa Lee, and I missed you, and we made mention of that. But one of the sectors we talked about was energy and healthcare. And energy, I still think, has room, despite my negative view on the broader market. And I did mention that on Monday. I think energy can continue to go higher. Now, a couple weeks ago, we played this gategate game, game, traded or faded, and ExxonMobil was one of the names. And I stood and looked at Tim Seymour. I said, you know what? You've got to fade this sucker because I think it's going to trade down to 68. Look at where they traded down to, because I'm talking to the people at home. But I also said you buy it there, and now look at what it's done over the last couple weeks. ExxonMobil goes higher from here, as does ConocoPhillips. And if you want levered names, Holly Frontier's had a great couple weeks, as has Anadarko Petroleum. So despite my negative views on the broader market, which we will talk about later, I think energy goes up. Guy, I'm looking at you right now, and I tend to agree with what you're saying. Um, Look, there's there's a couple things that are going on. The storm around the expectation for oil prices or the confidence level uh, have changed dramatically in the last three or four weeks. Think about, first of all, the Fed is ultimately uh, going to help you in terms of your dollar call, although the dollar has actually been somewhat bullish over the last three or four, call it two weeks. Um, And actually, oil has performed very well. But the most important things are, it seems to me that OPEC and non-OPEC at least have their dynamics back together in terms of how they're handling supply cuts. Saudi came out yesterday today and reaffirmed today they will be cutting supply. They will not be pushing more heavy, sweet uh, and crude going out on the back of the Venezuela cutbacks. And so, you know, the the dynamic in terms of supply, I think, is in pretty good shape. Then you had the IEA come out and actually say we're going to get 1.4 million barrels a day of demand growth in 2019. That's reassuring. OPEC was lower than that. So, uh, you know, to me, if you just want to look at the fundamentals in terms of supply demand, you've had a lot of good news. Now, you know, every day we have a conference call, Mm. right? Uh, in the middle of the afternoon. Yes, this is a peek behind the curtain for Fast mm. Money viewers. We have like the Fifth call. Dimension. We exchange yeah. ideas. We talk about what, get, what uh, gets us jazzed. It's exciting time. We, uh, we well, live we for We said it. energy. Brian Kelly, you said, I love it. I'll buy it. I'll buy everything yes. energy. I mean, you, you can Absolutely. be more bullish about I, this. Uh, yeah. I mean, this this has everything that I look for. So the f- biggest thing that got me today is at 1030, we had uh, oil inventories. It came out with a build, yet oil went up. So whenever I see price action like that, Bad news or bearish news, bullish price action, it makes BK go, hmm. The second thing is, we had terrible economic news out of Europe. Maybe China's still not doing well. So you have all these negative factors that should be bearish for oil, yet oil keeps going higher. You look at Brent crude, which is to what Tim was talking about. That looks like it's breaking out higher. You had a stronger dollar. That should be bearish for oil, but oil keeps going higher. So 
whatever you think about it, the bottom line is this thing's breaking out. You want to buy everything in the energy sector you can get your hands on. Everything. Well, I mean, you know, within reason. Buy, 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 buy. buy There you go. Yeah. Yeah, but you guys are making it sound like we didn't have this precipitous drop that we've had in the last four months. I mean, the oil crashed, you know, four months ago. And the fact that it's made up maybe a third of its losses in the last four months, but it's made up a third of its losses. You guys were talking about Exxon, Chevron, Mm -hmm. uh, Conoco. Those three stocks make up 40 or almost 50 percent of the XLE, the ETF that tracks the S&P oil and gas sector. That thing seems kind of stuck there at 65 bucks. I'm just, you know, let's just put that out there. I just don't see the price action and crude that interesting. I'll take you back to 830 this morning. We got that CPI. Okay. One of the reasons why people are trying to get more bullish or constructive on equities right here is because the Fed is supposedly off the table. Well, our friend Peter Bookvar had a really good note this morning about inflation. He said, don't tell me there's not inflation. We saw the CPI up 1.6% year over year. X food and energy up 2.2%. What do you think is going to happen if the Fed comes back into play or people start saying, oh, inflation's running a little hot here. Maybe the Fed's back on play. Uh, we might start to see the sort of volatility on risk assets that we saw four months ago. When but things that's, I mean, I think that risk is less than it was before. I mean, the Fed has already told you in multiple different statements that they're willing to tolerate a little more inflation than what we've tolerated in the past. So I think that's off the table. Secondarily, as long as you don't have run away inflation, then you actually want to be in stocks in an inflationary environment. And I just want to point out something. Commodities rally when there is inflation. So the whole point of when you want to own commodities is when we actually have inflation and it's starting to run. So, you know, to me, if we are getting more inflation, you want to own oil. The second thing I'd say is you're right. Oil got crushed. And whatever the dynamics were, um, you can make an argument that positioning in the energy sector is the most important reason why you want to. I talked about fundamentals, but I think this market is and I, I, I pointed out the short interest in the sector is at record highs. I'm talking about record highs. So it tells me that people don't like this trade. The fact that the XLE has outperformed the, the S&P by 700 basis points since the low of the markets tells you, again, we know the pain trade was higher. The pain trade in energy is that much higher than that in the S&P. What seems to be slightly different is, is what's happened in the past couple of days, and that is that we have, un, we have learned that OPEC has really been standing by its production cuts and that Saudi is actually going to take off a half a million barrels per day more than what they had pledged back at the meeting. And so you do have supply being kept in check, and and that's Mm -hmm. an incremental part of this story. Which is helping the story. But to BK's point, I think he made a great one. Oil inventories were up 3.6 million barrels. That's 50% more than the street was looking for, and crude rallied despite. And in terms of the Fed being focused on inflation, the only inflationary thing they're looking at is the move in the S&P 500, respectfully. So until that sucker gets back to Mm all-time highs, which we're still a ways away, I think the Fed's probably on hold. They told you that. I don't think they're right, but that's the fact. So I do think energy on a benign tape, stocks can continue to go higher. I have a question. At what point does a strong dollar start to hurt energy prices? I mean, it, 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 I it mean, could be any day now, It could be, a, it could be any day. It's really, it is a correlation, but it's dependent on why the dollar is strong, right? So if you have a strong dollar and a very weak global economy, yeah, that's going to hurt oil. But if the reason why oil is going up and copper people are getting excited about and all these commodities going higher is that they're betting that the economy is going to get better, we're going to sign a trade deal with China and all of that, then oil right. and the dollar can go up. But the risk is, they, to your point, at some point, Higher oil prices make higher uh, uh, interest rates, and the Fed 
can put cold water. But a year ago at this time, the expectations for Fed increases or rate increases were three quarter points. Now they're off the table. This is for 2019, right? So what happened? Once we saw the dollar start to go up, we saw crude get nailed. So everybody here is looking at the dollar saying looks pretty constructive. There's no expectations for rate increases in 2019. So if we have inflation start ticking up further than that 2%, but somewhere maybe it's above two and a half. I'm just saying, then do we get the Fed back on the table? Then do you see oil stocks crater again? Because let's yeah, but, but the, the Fed point is between here and there, you can make money. I mean, we're talking about maybe six months from now. Guys, if the Fed is back in play, everything that we want for oil and everything we want for markets is in play. Again, we want growth. We want inflation. We want things. CPI to me, and I think Peter Bookvar's work is some of the best out there. So um, I agree with that. But I don't think that this is a dynamic where we're worried about inflation. Again, a growth scare is much worse than an inflation scare. I'd like to see the Fed back in play. I think the reality is the dollar's moving higher because we've had a lot of weakness in Europe. And, And while, of course, a flight to quality could come from Europe, exploding. I talk about that all the time. But the dollar strength, we're talking about one and a half to two percent over the last two weeks. Uh, but it's range bound. The dollar's been range bound since last July. Until I see otherwise, that's where we are. Look, just to button it up, I think the Fed should be in play for a lot of different reasons. But it's clear now their mandate is to get asset prices higher. So again, until the S&P 500 gets to anywhere close to 2,900, I think they're on hold. I'm not suggesting that's right. I just think that's the way it is. In my world, I think energy stocks go higher. All right. Well, as the markets continue to rally, one technician says it could be time to ditch growth for value. Let's go off the charts with Mark Newton of Newton Advisors. Hey, Mark, what are you looking at? Hi there. So we've seen a big rally and an even bigger period of uncertainty. And so you take a look at the S&P just in the last couple months. We've moved up 400 points in 33 trading days. That's about 17 percent or about a half a percent a day, a big move. Let's take a look at what the key levels are. Initially, 2630, we managed to get through that. That was the first level that most people thought could stop this rally. Then we got above 2715. That was the second level. So if anything, the market still has a lot of upward momentum on a weekly basis. What are the near-term concerns, though? One, Treasury yields are not really following stocks. They've been subdued. You're starting to see a little bit more of a defensive rally in the near term. Even with this move in the last couple of days, utilities and staples have been number two and three in terms of performance over the last five days. Uh, you're also seeing a little bit of signs of near-term momentum deterioration. It's not much, but in general, you want to watch for evidence that this rally could be starting to show short-term signs of peaking out. My thinking is, in general, it is a good move. We've gotten above key levels, even on a near-term pullback, that would be something to buy into, simply because the sentiment has gotten incredibly subdued, and there's still a lot of concern out there about a lot of the right reasons. So what else are we looking at? Technology. I don't like technology here. I think we've had a big move. However, we've gotten up to levels that really are important. When you look at the 200-day moving average, this was important throughout most of the last couple years. Uh, If anything, you look at equal-weighted tech, that's also up near former highs, as well as the SOX, right near 1385. What, What should we look at what to go into? I would suggest financials make a lot of sense here. This sector has been under pressure now for the first time, really, In the last week, we're seeing XLF break out above the entire downtrend since last September. That's where this group peaked out. So if anything, financials are starting to gain a little bit of steam at a time when technology has been very overbought. So what financials would you want to buy? I still like financial tech, the credit card processors, Visa, MasterCard. However, J.P. Morgan stands out to me as being really interesting here only because we've gotten above this prior area of former lows. It really held the stock the entire way down. Now we've bounced and we're getting back up above this just in the last couple of days. So 
Granted, Berkshire and J.P. Morgan make up a lot of XLF. This seems to be one to follow in thinking this rally can continue. Uh, Mark, just to bring you back into the conversation we were just having, where does, where does energy fall into all of this? Energy has gotten a little bit more constructive. We had one of the better months in recent memory in energy in January, and of course that was given back over the last month. Uh, I think the move in Saudi in the last couple days is really constructive for WTI. And so I like XLE, I like OIH. I think those are better than things like uh, the exploration and production area. So in general, I think crude probably rallies up to the low 60s. Energy is probably something to still favor during a bullish time of seasonality in this group. All right, Mark, thank you. Good to see you, Mark Newton of thank Newton you. Advisors. Dan, I think we all know where you stand on financials, but... Uh... Uh, listen, I like Mark's work, and if he's telling me that the S&P is stalling out here, I could look at the financials, I could look at the bank stocks and say they have stalled out. They are down in this month versus where they were at the end of January once they had all had been done reporting earnings that were actually not that bad. And so I look at J.P. Morgan, two weeks ago it was 105, it's 103 today. Citibank, same thing, Bank America. The uh, investment banks, Morgan Stanley and Goldman Sachs, act horrible. Morgan Stanley is one of the worst looking charts, I'm telling you, in the entire market here. So I agree with his broad market call. I don't know why you would go into a group that has underperformed over the last two weeks as the S&P has made new highs consistently on what feels like vapors. So, I I mean, you make some very good points, but let me give the other side. Let me give you the bullish case (laughs) to it. We just talked about oil going higher. We just talked about inflation picking up. What's going to happen to the yield curve? That yield curve's going to steepen. It already is a tiny bit. It's not a massive steepening. But if that happens, to the extent that investors think that the yield curve drives bank earnings, that could be very positive for the banks. I feel like BK is so incredibly bullish tonight. I love the bullish. Maybe maybe I've turned over a new leaf. Maybe it's a bull suit he's got on zipped up in the back. It is. That's a guarantee the market's going down. Um, (laughs) So I I don't know what suit I'm wearing. I I will tell you that my view is the same I've had on financials probably for the last couple months. I look at money center banks. They traded around 8.9 times uh, 2020 earnings in a long-term range of 8.2 to 11.3. Banks are telling you it's a recessionary economy. Regional banks, we've had M&A activity, a driver for that sector. Regional banks trade well through their long-term P.E. around 9.2 times versus 9.8 to 13.5. Banks are cheap by any metric, and that's the most important thing. Coming up, two big after-hours movers, MGM and Cisco, both out with earnings moments ago. We are monitoring the calls and bringing the very latest. Plus, more competition for Tesla as the electric vehicle market heats up. And top Tesla analyst Adam Jonas says the automaker could be losing its edge. He will be here. And later, hot stocks flying high this year, but one Wall Street firm is calling the cannabis craze nothing but smoke and mirrors. Uh, We will tell you what has them so bearish. We are live from Times Square in New York City. Much more Fast Money right after this. Welcome back to Fast Money. We have an earnings alert on MGM higher after reporting earnings. Let's get to Contessa Brewer back at headquarters with more. Contessa. Hi there, Melissa. Yeah, MGM benefited from the new properties they own, such as MGM Springfield, the park and the Nomad in Las Vegas, and the MGM Kotai in Macau. Casinos generally have been hit or miss in Macau because of the volatility there, the slowing Chinese economy, the concerns over trade tensions with China. But MGM's new property there gave it a lift to meet fourth quarter expectations and grow in China the revenues full year 
32% year over year. Dan Waziola is the senior equity analyst at Morningstar, and he points out Macau looked solid with the newer Kotai property, seeing Q4 revenue of $275 million versus $172 million reported last quarter as the new VIP rooms opened. That's notable because a lot of these casinos have started focusing on mass and premium mass. David Katz, gaming analyst at Jeffrey, says almost all the properties were better than our forecast, particularly in Las Vegas, where, despite the tragic shooting in the prior year, the company had been pointing out a strong convention business. They kept expectations low and beat them. MGM announced an increase in quarterly dividends by 8%. CEO Jim Murn reiterates his commitment to increasing free cash flow. And though he's backed away in the past from providing guidance, he's now highlighting the growth vehicles of the future. One, MGM 2020. It's an efficiency and cost-cutting initiative and partly an olive branch to activists, including new board member Keith Meister. And it includes a look at these properties and whether they should belong to the REITs. Pursuit of a license to run an integrated resort in Japan. They've just hired a new former Nevada governor, Brian Sandoval, on that front. And sports betting in the United States. They double down. They beat their competitors to the punch. You guys, the earnings call is still going on here, so I'll jump back on. All right, Contessa, thank you. Contessa Brewer with their phone at the ready. Uh, guy here, what do you think? Win. that's where I would go. Now, listen, I'm not the smartest guy here. You know that, no. but I will tell you that Wynn was a $200 stock last spring, went down to $100 late in the year in 2018. That's cut in half, right, BK? Is that about right? Thank you. I appreciate that. Now it's 127, so it has rallied significantly. But I still think there's room. Listen, January, Macau gaming revenue was down 5% year over year, which is not good, but the stock rallied on the back of it. To BK's point about bad news being not bad news for stocks, which means I still think there's room to the upside in a lot of these names. And again, the bad news was not as bad as they expected on that GGR out of Macau because they were expecting it down seven. So the point is, people are pricing so much damage. Gross Gross gaming revenue. revenue, GGR. We love acronyms in the finance world. Um, and, and I think in the case of Wynn, you love that valuation. I mean, this stock trades cheap relative to its peers. Um, the sense that at least China, in terms of Big Brother, forget the China trade dynamics, which I think is, is at least a, a tailwind and optionality to the upside. But the dynamic of just Big Brother and concern about capital flight and a lot of these headwinds that were going on in Macau, I think, are in many cases largely behind them. So I like the casinos as well. All right, let's check on one of our other earnings movers here. Cisco is higher off of its earnings report. The call is underway. We'll bring in the very latest. I'm Melissa Lee. You're watching Fast Money on CNBC, first in business worldwide. Here's what else is coming up on Fast. Say, man, you got a joint? Uh, no, not on me, man. (laughs) It'd be a lot cooler if you did. Maybe not, because one weed bear says the pot bubble is about to burst. Find out what has him passing on the grass. Plus, a top Tesla analyst says the company's moat is shrinking. I'm not sure what you mean by that. Don't worry, Elon, because he'll be here to explain exactly what he means. There's much more Fast Money right after this. Welcome back to Fast Money. Markets rallying today despite signs the economy could be getting weaker. A new report showing that auto loan delinquencies have hit the highest level since the financial crisis. Goldman Sachs CEO David Solomon commenting on that and the economy in an exclusive interview earlier today. Well, there's no question that the momentum of growth in the United States has definitely slowed. The trajectory is not quite as strong as it was a year ago. That said, Economic activity in the United States is still chugging along pretty well. 
Uh, I think we're in a position at the moment where we should see reasonable growth during the course of the year, let's say, you know, two to two and a quarter percent growth, which is not bad. And so I think we're in a place where the chance of recession in 2019 is actually quite small and the economic expansion should probably continue. Okay, so DJ Saul, mm-hmm, I mean, yep. David Solomon, yep. said he's not worried. Also, look at this chart, courtesy of our good friend, Tony Dwyer from Canaccord. This shows that despite the spike in auto loan delinquencies, other key categories, such as mortgage, credit card lending, they are at their lowest levels of the cycle. And what you need is to have all three levels go down in terms of delinquencies, go delinquencies higher in order for there to be a recession or credit crisis. So right. no worries ahead, according to Tony Dwyer and according to D- DJ Saul. Where do you fall, though? I'm, I'm, listen, you know, the economy will keep chugging ahead. Yeah, as long as people spend money, the, the economy will be chugging ahead because 73, 73% of our economy are people buying things at DJ Saul's holiday party or whatever. He spins discs on the weekends. They're buying their, their drinks and their coffees. That's the U.S. economy. But you know what? That can turn on a dime. And you saw hints of it in October and November. People will stop spending if there's a market disruption, which is why the Fed probably needed to do what they did. But I am so, no. I mean, U.S. US consumer debt to GDP is now north of 50 percent, a ridiculous level. And corporate debt to GDP is approaching that, also a ridiculous level. So you're worried. I'm always worried. Despite DJ Saul, despite Tony Dwyer. I, I think it's right to be concerned about debt levels, especially in a slowing economy. And that's really where you run into the problems. If you remember, so we talked about uh, what happened to the leverage loan market. Uh, we should be continuing to watch the leverage loan market. The high yield market, interestingly enough, is back kind of to where we were at the beginning of October when the thing fell out of bed. I would argue that a lot of what happened year end was a liquidity dynamic. It doesn't mean that there aren't significant credit concerns that could be out there. I think the biggest problem is not high yield and it's not leveraged loans. It's essentially this kind of triple B, triple B plus area where most of the debt lies. Yeah, but who said anything about a credit crisis? When you think about it, I know what you thought that the late year sell-off was liquidity. You just said that, but it also was a growth scare, right? And so when you think about this, that when we started 2018, expectations for GDP growth were north of 3%. We're going to come in about 3%. In 2019, north of that. Right now, we're expected to grow at 2% in 2019 with the tailwind of the tax cut in the 10th year of this recovery. But you don't think that is we, a tailwind. Well, hold on, though. But what is the average GDP growth in the last 10 years since the financial crisis, it's been about 2%. So when DJ Saul says, I don't think there's a great chance of a recession, I'm not saying credit crisis. I'm saying a recession in 19, that dramatically increases when you think that Germany had 2% GDP growth two years ago, expect to be 1%, and China could be a little south of 6%, down from 6.6%. I mean, I hate to I hate to be the guy that's bullish again, but I what? would call... Yeah, well, like listen, upside down Yes, because, here. listen, wow. this is a Great. yellow light. This is caution. Whatever you you want to say canary in the coal mine that type of thing you need to be concerned about but you also have to temper that with knowing we had tightening credit conditions here in the u.s we had a slowdown in the economy with the fed somewhat off the table with things turning around maybe a trade deal in china all these things add into perhaps looking through this keep an eye on it but i don't think you have to panic and to dan's point about two percent gdp growth that's great we had that the market still went up so we can argue about the economy, and I'm the first guy to tell you that I think this whole thing ends very, very badly. But for right now, stocks uh, looks to me like they still go up despite this indicator. When I was a kid in the 1950s, Mel, I used to, we used to play a game, red light, green light, one, two, three. Remember that great yes. game? Yes. It was a great game. 
That's all you had to well, add. BK that's made a, no, mention. No, I'm glad you pointed out Check out Shares of Cisco on to more important matters here. They are moving higher in the after hours session after reporting earnings. We'll tell you what is driving that move. Plus, a top Tesla analyst, Adam Jonas, sounding the alarm on the stock as competition heats up. He'll tell us what has him so nervous when Fast Money returns. Welcome back to Fast Money. Tesla shares down as competition starts to heat up. Our Phil LeBeau joins us now with more on that. Hey, Phil. With potential investments in electric vehicle maker Rivian getting attention, it raises the question, is Tesla's dominance of the U.S. EV market potentially being threatened? Well, not anytime soon. Last year, Tesla easily outdistanced its competitors when it comes to EV sales in the United States. But keep in mind, those sales were helped out by deliveries of the Model 3. Over the next couple of years, there will be more competition. New electric vehicles on the way, especially from luxury automakers like Porsche and Jaguar. That could cut into Tesla's lead. And then in the mass market, don't be surprised if you see Tesla seeing greater competition, especially when it comes to crossover utility vehicles and pickup trucks, two areas where Tesla has plans, but those vehicles are not yet close to being sold. As a result, Tesla's dominance, while it looks like it has nothing to worry about right now, it could be threatened in the next couple of years. Melissa, back to you. All right, Phil, thanks, Phil LeBeau. For more on the next frontier for electric vehicles, let's bring in Adam Jonas, Morgan Stanley's global auto analyst. Adam, great to have you with us. Thanks for having us. Um, I want to get right to this Rivian report. I, I thought that was interesting from the GM perspective as well as from the Tesla perspective, but just the notion that GM, you know, when it comes to this very profitable segment for them, the pickup truck, they want to make sure they have a toehold in the electrified pickup truck. Is that really a threat for Tesla? which does not have a product currently on the market? So Tesla has monopolized uh, publicly traded electric vehicles since the IPO, and they've pretty much all but monopolized the market, right? Uh, Tesla accounts for about 80% of unit volume of EVs in the States, 90% of revenue, and they've done that without being in the hottest segments like pickup trucks and really a broader utility platform. So if someone can kind of cut them off at the pass and say, hey, we're going to put an electric powertrain uh, and a duty cycle with fleet buyers that can power tools and work with infrastructure on a job site, uh, perhaps that's something that could be a differentiated edge that Tesla acknowledges. They'll unveil an electric pickup truck this summer, but you know, maybe, maybe that's a way for someone to get in and try to cut Tesla off from um, that dominance. Who, who, who do you think will win this fight? I mean, obviously GM has the production expertise that mm-hmm. Tesla may not have, and it's, they've had difficulties launching a new products onto the markets. Um, but Tesla does have that cool factor, we, the design factor. We think uh, it's going to be a clean sheet approach where you start from total ground zero on electric vehicle architecture, uh, software done in-house, uh, and, it, and without having to defend a business model that may not have a long-term future. And so companies like Rivian and, and other startups uh, that can get access to the best talent and then can get access to capital and kind of have the business model chops of an Amazon behind it, mm-hmm. um, that could pose to us, we think, a, a much more serious threat to Tesla than, say, the Germans, who will have EVs, but the cultural issues are, are real limiting factors in our opinion. Adam, I, I guess I've always felt competition was the big issue, but I, mm-hmm. I, I would be more concerned if I'm a Tesla shareholder about balance sheet issues and solvency mm-hmm. issues at yeah. this point. And, and I, I got very concerned at looking at their CapEx um, essentially being down 60% year over mm-hmm. year during for a company that's a growth company. Can, mm-hmm. can, you, can you explain to me either 
why that might be the case, and also mm -hmm. just where your greatest concerns lie in this company. Um, well, I think that concern, the biggest question for Tesla's share price, would say over the next 12 months, more than just this emerging competition is, is this company finally at a point where it's self-financing, where it doesn't need external capital, equity capital, to fund its very ambitious plans? Last two quarters would tell you, heck yeah, you know, they, almost a billion of cap free cash flow per quarter. The referendum in the market is the difference between what has been achieved and what can be sustained. And Elon also, frankly, guided to a pretty weak Q1. We're expecting a 600 million uh, cash burn, maybe as much as a billion in the first quarter. We think for the year they burn cash, not a ton, but reverse that trend. Uh, so cutting the CapEx, yeah, we think that there may be an air pocket from some demand that was pulled forward. And some of the ambitions we still think could use some external funding. We don't think they're quite out of the woods yet. Every time they've done a secondary or some form of a capital raise, the stock has actually rallied. Is yep. the next one, I know your price target, I think it's 283. Correct. Is the next one the market doesn't look as favorably upon, in your opinion? Yeah, it depends where the money comes from. We think that Tesla is fundamentally overvalued, but strategically undervalued. The mixture of those two things leaves, in our opinion, a stock that's slightly above fair value, 283. Uh, we think that the next capital raise, uh, if it doesn't come from a strategic, be it a sovereign, a tech partner, another OEM, all the above, uh, if it doesn't come from that genre, uh, then it's not because they didn't try, in our opinion. So that, that could go a long way. Can they attach to a platform uh, that can provide a, a greater resiliency longer term to their model instead of just being a standalone electric car company? Last quick question on mm -hmm. GM, going back to Rivian. Does that news make you incrementally more bullish on GM and the GM electrified vehicle story? Well, let's just say, if, assuming the news is confirmed, because yes. the companies have not uh, con confirmed it, they've not had a comment, but assuming it's true, <clears throat> I think it would, it would suggest that the board of directors of GM, which is very sophisticated, we've written a lot about just how important the culture of the GM board has been to like, you know, a reawakening this company and, and being very agile. It's great to see them do that. At the same time, it's kind of a, if you can't beat them, join them moment for GM where they're funding a disruptor who's going after a segment where GM and their Detroit brethren, I mean, that's the holiest of holies, that pickup truck market. We joke, I mean, the, the F-150 is called the F-150 because we think it accounts for 150% of Ford's profits. So it's kind of touch and go. And I'd say a net negative. Auto analyst humor. Wait, it's a net negative for GM. <laughs> I think it's, GM. A, it's, a net, it's, a, it's a net negative, but it's okay. better than being in denial and, and perhaps spending, letting them, somebody else or maybe take spending the share. money by yourself and saying, we'll do it, we'll it in-house and we'll dominate. No one can touch our trucks. So it's, huh. a, it's a bit of a self-awareness, but a net negative in our All opinion. All right. Adam, thank you. Adam Jonas of Morgan Stanley. Um, what I think he says a couple things about the Q4 to Q1 sequential move. That guide for Q1 was substantially um, for greater for Tesla mm -hmm. than it has been Q4 to Q1. I think it's close to 10% in terms of revenue. So what that does is set up very low expectations as we get towards the end of the quarter. And the other thing Guy will tell you is the thing, you know, 280 on the downside, 380 on the upside. You know, I think shorts covered down near 280. I mean, the ones, not the ones that are dig in. So the stock has turned into a pretty good um, trading vehicle, no pun intended, and the fact of the matter is that for the first time in a while, they actually have lowered expectations where they haven't done so. I mean, Tesla's effectively gone nowhere, the, to Dan's point on the trading range, for the last year or so. I tend to look at the company more like a venture capital type investment, where you have a five or ten year type of time horizon that it's going to be this disruptive force, not just in autos, but perhaps in the electric grid and all of that. And so, in that sense, it's one of those for me, you buy it, you take the shares, you put them in your drawer, and in ten years, see if you want. 
It's nice to hear Adam, you know, who we respect, talk about his respect for the GM board. And I, I think the story on GM, and we learned about that, that, that news yesterday, does this give GMs multiple, which to me has been hard to talk about it and, and or hard, to, hard to explain. Dan loves to talk about it. And Dan may be right. In other words, how do you explain a company that continues to deliver numbers and be stuck in this multiple range, which is sub six right now, 2019? I think GM is obviously the, bet, the better play between the two, not only on valuation, because I think they're going to be in this space. I mean, I thought it was interesting. The initial reaction was positive on, on the part of GM shares to this news. And Adam's sake was very interesting that it's, yep. uh, you know, just self-awareness that it's behind, that it's got to do something very quickly. It's got to do something. It's got to do, do something, something quickly. And yeah. the knee jerk was higher and it's probably yeah. going to sift back like it was. And did you notice Adam has cufflinks? He's got AJ cufflinks because we How gave, appropriate. Because that we gave him that nickname. You're taking credit for that? I would posit <laughs> that he was born with those initials. Yeah, though. why are you taking credit right. for his, his so, cufflinks? He's yeah. my favorite Jonas brother, too. He's the bonus, bonus Jonas. The bonus Jonas. Excellent. All right, coming up, take a look at shares of Cisco up 4% after reporting earnings. We'll hear from the CEO in just a few minutes. Plus, are the cushy gains in cannabis too good to be true? One analyst says the rally is nothing but smoke and mirrors. He'll join us later to explain why you should pass on the grass. More fast money still ahead. Tremendous. Welcome back to Fast Money. Check out shares of Cisco jumping after beating on the earnings report. Uh, Let's get to Josh Lipton in San Francisco with the details. Hey, Josh. Hey, Mel. A confident Chuck Robbins on this call, the CEO saying that the portfolio is in the best shape it's been in uh, in years, that they've built a resilient growth engine delivering revenue growth across all geographies and industries. Analysts did ask Robbins about the government shutdown and tariffs. Um, Just what impact those issues are having on his business. Take a listen. It certainly is one of the more complex macro geopolitical environments that I think we've seen in quite a while with all the different moving parts. But to be honest, from the first day of the quarter to the last day of the quarter, we saw zero difference. Uh, We saw very steady demand throughout the quarter and uh, just saw great execution by our teams. And, you know, when we look out ahead at at, uh, the guide, you know, there's we're we're looking at the conditions as they exist today, and uh, so far we've been able to navigate uh, all the different dynamics, uh, I think, pretty well. We're pretty proud of what the teams have accomplished. There was this interesting exchange, too, Mel, where an analyst said he had hosted this um, call with Huawei, and they said they were actually going to gain share, market share, and Robbins was having none of that. He simply said, I would put our innovation up against theirs and anybody else's in the world right now. For much more from Chuck Robbins, tune in tomorrow. The CEO will be on CNBC talking about this report and I'm sure his outlook. Guys, back to you. All right, Josh. Thank you, Josh Lifton in San Francisco. And this was a very interesting quarter for Cisco. It included the government shutdown. It included a lot of China trade tensions. Uh, it included a lot of the uh, bad macro data that we got from around the world. You said this is very important earnings. Yeah, listen, the confidence, their ability to actually raise guidance. Revenues were expected to uh, increase 3% sequentially. They're saying it's going to be up maybe 5%. Um, given all those headwinds, we hadn't even mentioned the dollar. More than 40% of their sales come from outside the U.S. So to me, this actually speaks to um, you know global enterprise spending here. And obviously, the government stuff is really important, too. So you know, I don't know if you buy the stock at 50 bucks trading at 18, 19 year highs, but trading in a market multiple, given that visibility they just gave you and the confidence, it seems to be a good own in the high 40s. Sorry, I just think that Cisco, if it's treated in the same way as it's treated with other uh, tech infrastructure places, people are wrong. I mean, they are in the, the, the pole position to me in cybersecurity. There's a reason why the stock's been so defensive. And, and I think this company is going to continue to go higher because that is a, something people can't 
stop spending on. They also seem to buck the trend when it came to weakness in the data center. I mean, we had F5, we had Juniper, and they talked about weakness in the data center. And here we are with Cisco up almost 4% in the after hours. They're in the right businesses because yeah. margins hung in there. They're buying stock hand over fist. You know, to Dan's point, trades at 14 times next year's number. You don't have huge growth. I don't think you necessarily need huge growth. Also, to Dan's point, though, now we're at levels that we could we topped out at midway last year, 49 and a half or so. Close above 50 sets it up to take out levels we haven't seen since 1999. But I would rather wait to get that breakout identified and defined than buy it here off this quarter with the stock up from 41 over the last basically three or four weeks. It's interesting is that Chuck Robbins was actually on CNBC a couple weeks ago saying he was very concerned about the global economy, very concerned how it's starting to impact his business. So this is excellent news that it snapped back, that the global economy snapped back. That being said, I'm more in guys camp. I'd much rather the way I would trade it, the breakout through 50, when it pulls back and bounces off 50 again, that's when BK wants to get it. All right, let's stick with the tech space. Check out the chip stocks on a rip this year. The SMH, the ETF that tracks them, up around 17%. And the rally could get even hotter when one big name reports tomorrow, NVIDIA. So, Dan, why don't you head over to the plasma? Yeah, let's talk about this one because the implied movement don't is push pretty big. And it's been an aggressive mover on earnings news over the last few months. If you think back to November 15th, the company reported a very disappointing result. The stock was down 20%. Then, just last month, January 25th, the company pre-announced a negative quarter and the stock was down 15%. This stock has been cut in half from its early October highs. So tomorrow, the options market is implying about a 10% move, or excuse me, 7% move in either direction. That's 11 bucks. And we talk about implied movement all the time. Let me just break this down exactly what that means. If I know that this stock is reporting on Thursday after the close, I can look at the at-the-money straddle, the weekly options. When the stock was trading at 155, the weekly 155 call was offered at 550. The weekly 155 put was offered at 550. Together, that makes $11. Between now and Friday's expiration, if you were to buy the implied movement in this stock for earnings, you would need the stock to go up 11 or down 11 in either direction. That being said, if you're picking a direction and you want to be defined risk long a call because you think it's going to go higher, you only need a 3.5% move or a $5.50 move to get that right by Friday's close. There's that range right here. Let's go to the charts on this one. The short-dated call volume really dominated today. The most active strikes were the February 150 and 155 strikes with the stock trading within that range here. This stock, this is that 50% decline. There is that gap. Here's the pre-announcement gap. When I look at this thing, just like some of these other tech stocks have gotten mangled, Facebook for one, Apple another, when the expectations get really low and the news is out, and ATVI, Activision yesterday, did the same sort of thing, sometimes when they finally get around to giving the full report, the stock has some room to the upside. That's the one-year chart. Let's just go to the five-year chart. One reason why you may consider, if you have a directional view into earnings, defining your risk with calls or puts, Look at this thing. It obviously is down 50%. But, I mean, I think you'd make the case that at some point this thing kind of overshot to the upside over the last few years. Defining your risk with an at-the-money call or put, whether your directional bias into this print is the way to do it. You're risking basically $5.50 to make that directional bet on something that may have a kind of boomerang action if the news is unexpected. Now, I know you just put a gummy bear in Broke your mouth. It down. No, I ate it already. Oh, okay. I'm like it's Carter gone. Worth, choose it okay. for half an hour. I What's mean, I put it in, video? I take one bite, it's done. You know, a couple choking. things come to mind. You know, at my age, you start to associate events with this certain things. So for me, NVIDIA's two quarters ago, I associate with that snowstorm, which the governor of New Jersey screwed up, which had us all in our cars 
for six hours. So now NVIDIA, in my mind's a negative, right? So I would tend to think what? that this- Hold on, uh, can you explain that? So are you negative miss, on the stock? I missed something. Are you taking yeah. it out what did you miss? What did you miss? What did you miss? NVIDIA reported stock went down to 135 from 185. It was a straight line down. I was stuck in a car, snowstorm, six hours in the car. I think NVIDIA that goes lower. Sense. How's them apples? Makes sense. Like you're wow. bitter. For somebody. options action, check out the full show Friday, 5.30 p.m. Eastern time. Coming up, the cannabis craze has portfolios blazing this year, but you'll never guess what one Wall Street analyst is comparing this budding industry to. He'll join us to explain. We're live at the NASDAQ at Times Square. Much more fast. Still ahead. Welcome back to Fast Money. The cannabis craze taking the world by storm as pot stocks blaze higher this year. Names like Kronos almost doubling in value just in the last few weeks. But one Raymond James analyst says the pot trade reminds him of tulip mania and is warning that the space could go up in smoke. Mm. David Novak joins us now from Toronto. David, great to have you with us. Um, I, I, I thank you very much for having me. I think it's worth noting that your background, and correct me if, you're, if I'm wrong, is, is covering the pharmaceutical and biotech space. So you're really approaching it from concerns about the medical claims when it comes to medical marijuana and the use of the various compounds in the cannabis plant when it, you know, when it comes to treating illnesses. Is that correct? Yeah, that's right. So, so I actually think it's important to preface this discussion with the fact that I don't view myself as a cannabis analyst. I view myself as a healthcare biotech analyst. And, you know, unfortunately in Canada, the major exchange here, the TSX, has bafflingly decided to lump cannabis in with a broader healthcare index. So I have a fiduciary responsibility to my investors, both retail and institutional, to provide a fair, objective, unbiased opinion on the cannabis space. And I took the perspective to look at the space it, it, from the only lens I know how, and that's a scientific medical lens. And you know, providing an objective, unbiased opinion is something that we at Raymond James provide. Uh, you know, we um, pride ourselves on being able to deliver. So basically, you don't buy a lot of that. You, you say the research is scant, um, if even existent, to actually prove that a lot of the claims are effective. There's one statistic that I want to quote you back from your note. To date, medical cannabis is associated with a probability of clinical success of 1.3% for a hypothetical therapeutic with niche market potential, or approximately 10 times less than the 14% phase one to commercialization clinical success rate of modern day biotech drug development. So boil that down for me. It, sound, it sounds like, it, it, like these claims are just not going to make it. They're not going to be proven. Well, I, I think that's right. So the approach that we took is first we started off with the sector as a whole. I'll be as clear as I possibly can. This is a bubble. Just like the tulip mania, just like the commodities craze, railroad craze, even the cryptocurrency craze of, of last year. Um, so to... to to, to look at the space, you know, LPs right now are trying to justify their egregious valuations by making bold claims of medical efficacy and major medical indications. So we took a step back and we looked at about 10,000 preclinical and clinical studies that have been curated by the National Academy of Sciences, Engineering and Medicine. And we wanted to determine whether or not any of these claims from glaucoma to glioblastoma had any scientific merit. And what we saw is there's really only three indications with moderate scientific supporting evidence. And that is chemotherapy-induced nausea, nausea and vomiting, um, chronic pain, and improving muscle spasticity and multiple sclerosis. 
To date, if you look at all of the clinical trials that have been completed, there's about mm -hmm. 160 of them. Only two drugs have been approved by the FDA, Marinol and Epidiolex. That's, that's a 1.4% probability of success. For a drug that you look at, Epidiolex did 1.4 million in sales in December. Right. Compare that to proper drug development companies today, which have a probability of success of 14% from preclinical to commercialization, to develop a drug that in itself could generate annual revenues in excess of the entire cannabis market, the risk reward is just far more favorable in biotech. All right. David, unfortunately, we're out of time. We'd love to have you back. We only scratched the surface of your 60-page report. Um, but thanks for your time. We do appreciate it. David Novak uh, of Raymond James. Uh, Tim, I go to you. What, what if you took out medical use? What if, for some reason, it wasn't proven or not proven that well, it would, would be effective? Good for him for, for asking some difficult questions about a sector that's very expensive. But to, to, to start to talk, talk about tulips, I mean, first of all, I would argue that there's, this is a, you can, the New Frontier Data does some great work in the space. They say it's $368 billion for the market with legal, medical, sorry, legal, illicit, medical, and recreational global. I mean, that's not a tulip market. That's a massive, massive market. But to get to the efficacy issues, you can make an argument 15% of the world's population are, are suffering from a condition that's commonly treated by cannabis. I mean, there's no question about it. And pain and OTC and sleep, that's working. All right. Up next, final trades. Final trade time, Tim. Let's go high quality EMP, EOG. Beaks. I'm going to piggyback on that. You can buy gold, gold. You can buy digital gold, Bitcoin, or black gold, oil, XOP. I like that Whoa. one. Damn. Yeah, NVIDIA, if you want to be long into the print, use calls. Key. And for the triple in the energy space, Holly Frontier, that comes out HFC. See you back here tomorrow at 5 for more fast. Mad Money with Jim Cramer starts right now.